the Community Service Society. Fighting poverty, strengthening New York. You know, I think this, a lot of this comes out of uh, our understanding that uh, basically because of gross failures of the education system, uh, particularly for black and brown people, that we're going to have to re-envision you know, their ways to into the middle class, into adequately supported jobs. And I think we have to start talking globally about this. It, it doesn't happen to be confined only to black and brown communities. It's now more and more Americans are in the position of not having an adequate preparation to really get first-class jobs in the economy. This city does not work without low-wage workers. Um, everyone who has a child, childcare worker, or who has an elderly parent are going to be dealing and, and, and working with low-wage workers, and the fact that their compensation and supports are inadequate will directly impact on the quality of their, their lives, no matter how wealthy you are. And I think we have to take a new look at uh, how people need to organize in order to have a shot in, in this new economy. Welcome to the Fighting Poverty, Strengthening New York podcast from the Community Service Society. I'm your host, Jeff Jones. Today, instead of talking about a specific program or campaign, we're going to be looking a little bigger, discussing an idea that could change how all people, especially low-income and marginalized New Yorkers, move forward. Our CEO, David Jones, set this up in the intro. Let's hear the end of that again. And I think we have to take a new look at uh, how people need to organize in order to uh, have a shot in, in this new economy. How people organize. On November 2nd, CSS hosted the second in a series of conversations around race inequality titled The Color Line in the 21st Century. The subject of this event was how a specific model of structuring a business could result in less inequality and more access to the economy for all. This business structure is called a worker self-directed enterprise, or worker co-op for short. Co-ops have been around a long time. So let me give you an example. In Brooklyn, there's a food co-op right by the uh, Park Slope area. I don't know if you've been there. It's, a, it's an impressive operation. They're all over the country. This is Professor Richard Wolf. But a food co-op is not what I'm talking about, because there, what's cooperative is the customer. You, if you're a member of the co-op, you're a member as a buyer, and you, you have to do, I think, two or three hours of work a month to be in that, and then you get this discounted price of all your groceries. I'm, I like that, but it's got nothing to do with what I'm talking about. I'm talking about organizing the work activity in a cooperative method. And this is what we'll be talking about. What if, instead of there being a boss or a board of directors who makes all the decisions and gets a lot of the profit, what if all the workers had a say? What if the people who did the work own the company? Richard Wolf is a professor of economics. I currently teach at the New School University here in New York City, and I helped found a group called Democracy at Work, which is a kind of research think tank advocacy group for worker co-ops as an important new direction to go in the economic life of our country. All right. So what is a worker co-op? What's the guiding idea behind it? The idea is when you go to work, you're affected by the decisions made in the workplace. You know, what time you have to come to work, how long you have a toilet break, how much you get paid, all the important things. 
and yet you don't participate in that decision in most cases in most work sites. That's the prerogative of the employer. That's the prerogative of whoever formed, organizes, owns the business, and the workers basically have to come to work and do what they are told. People who take democracy seriously basically have said, we like democracy, and our liking for it doesn't stop at the realm of politics. It includes economics. If it's right to democratically organize the political world, the world of where we vote and live in a community and and live with the results of what the mayor or the governor or the senator does, then we have to have power over that person. For example, voting them in, voting them out. Well, the same logic should apply to the workplace, should have always applied to the workplace. It should be democratic too. Basically, it's the same argument that said at a certain point in human history, we don't want kings anymore. We don't want emperor. We don't want one family's progeny through the generations to be telling us what to do as a people. We want us all to be involved in assemblies and parliaments and congresses to hash it out and debate it out. Will it take longer? Yes. It's always harder to get a large number of people who agree on something than to have a single king make up his mind. We'll live with that because it's a better society even that way because everybody participates. I think all of the arguments for that are excellent. I just think they apply to the workplace too. Democracy in the workplace. Sounds good. But how would something like that really work? It's a democratic system. So, for example, uh, you could imagine it this way. Monday to Thursday, you come to work, you do exactly what you've always done in your particular task in any factory or office or store. Friday, you come, and you don't do your particular task. Maybe it's every other Friday. You sit around with all the others, and you make the basic decisions. How is it going? You have reports from your different activities, and you make the kinds of judgments that a collective of reasonably well-informed people can make. Will they make mistakes? Of course they will, just like capitalist enterprises make mistakes. But it's the process. It's the participation of everybody. Everybody in a worker co-op owns the mistake. Everybody participated in arriving. Those who voted against it will have an I told you so that they can say to the others. And and you have a sense of participation that I think transforms the work life. You know, a worker who comes to his or her job nine to five, Monday to Friday, in the usual way, um, and is excluded, which in most cases is the case, from all the basic design of the enterprise, the design of the work process, decisions about what's done with the work that's produced and so on, that person's attitude, feeling, commitment to the job is simply less, there's no other way to put it, than what it would be if he or she was an owner, a leader, a responsible decision maker. So one of the first things it does I'll use a psychological term. Workers are constantly in a capitalist system feeling alienated, feeling as though they're doing work for somebody else. They're working hard for somebody else. So that when, I mean, I'll be blunt, when you're leaving the office one Friday afternoon on your way out and you notice a light that's on or you notice a faucet that's dripping, you're tired, you want to get home. 
it's not your faucet and it's not your light and so you go home. Enormous amounts of money are spent in capitalist enterprises trying to overcome the alienation that their very structure keeps regenerating. Whether it's Muzak to make people feel a little less drone-like, whether it's a break in the day, whether it's a chance to watch the game on the TV, but you can see this is a system that is trying to offset its own consequences and therefore never quite succeeding. So in a co-op, the workers make the decisions, decisions about what to make or do, where to do it, and what to do with the profits. This helps workers feel more invested, which can make the work more satisfying. But Professor Wolf says there are many more benefits than that to establishing worker co-ops. Workers are mostly concerned about the security of their job. It's the most important. It's even more than, I mean, sure, they'd like more money, but have the job, have the security, be able to make decisions about your family, about your future. So my guess is that the decisions about hiring and firing would be completely different. For a corporation, if you don't need these workers, you'll fire them. For a worker co-op, you don't need these workers doing this. Is there something else that the, that we could benefit? There'll be a whole different attitude. The bottom line will not just be profits. It'll be about a whole lot of other dimensions of the work situation. And I think it would make us have a different, and for my judgment, much better economic system than what we have now. Okay, but can this sort of thing really work? Well, it has and does. One example that Professor Wolf cites is called the Mondragon Corporation in Spain. Mondragon started as a cooperative making paraffin heaters in 1956 and has grown to become one of Spain's largest companies. Today, Mondragon itself is more of an umbrella organization overseeing 261 smaller co-ops that employ over 74,000 workers. Professor Wolf told me about how one of these co-ops handled the change in demand for their product. The biggest industrial unit of the Mondragon Corporation was a company, uh, I'll spell it out because my pronunciation will be terrible, F-A-G-O-R, Fagor, I guess. Um, And they made refrigerators, washing machines, uh, kitchen appliances um, in Spain. Uh, Some of them came here to the United States. You can actually find them in stores in the United States as well. Well, when the crash hit in 2008, housing took it on the chin, housing starts stopped, people didn't build housing, et cetera, et cetera. So their business, which was providing new appliances for the new kitchens, just collapsed. So they had a problem. What are they gonna do? They are not isolated from the rest of the economy. They were selling into the capitalist world, even though they were a co-op. So they had to decide what to do. Uh, because they they needed 20, 30% less production than they used to. Well, if you were a capitalist enterprise, you'd lay off 20, 30% of your workers because that's what's profitable for you to do. You don't want to pay them a salary. Um, and, that, and that's just the tradition. They didn't do that. Here's what they decided. Okay, we don't need 20% of the labor force, so everybody's going to work 20% fewer hours. Nobody's fired. In other words, it's shared. This is a bad time. It's going to last a year or two or three, and we have to get through it. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to be solidaristic amongst ourselves. We're going to believe in solidarity. So everybody takes a hit because it isn't fair, they argued, that one person loses his or her entire job. The person next to him doesn't. But the person next to him who didn't lose a job 
is not one whit more or less guilty for what has happened than the one who did. Since it's not the fault of the one who did, because he or she isn't responsible that the housing market collapsed, it would be a fundamental denial of the cooperative spirit that animates us to do what a capitalist enterprise. So they didn't. They cut back. Now, it was hard for everybody. Everybody had to get by with 20% less income, 20% less hours. They did have the um, leisure that comes with it. But more important, it was a lesson in we take care of one another. And that gave people a feeling of commitment to that enterprise, to that project. It's a feeling I'll be taken care of. I won't be chucked out for reasons that have nothing to do with me. I, I'm working as efficiently as I ever did. The economy out there breaks down. It's not my fault. And that we're all going to get through this together. In the long run, that's why Mondragon is successful. It has built up a, a loyalty that is the envy of a capitalist corporation. So why don't we have co-ops here in the U.S.? Well, we do, and we're going to visit one a little later in the podcast, but there's not a lot of them. The laws vary from state to state, but people trying to set up co-ops run into a number of issues because their structure just doesn't fit how people think businesses are run, making it hard to get a loan, for example. If a worker co-op, say 20 workers together, go to a bank and say we would like a loan to get our business going, the bankers are often kind of befuddled. Uh, who do we give the loan to? Well, you give it to all of us. We don't do business like it. We, we have to have a corporation we lend to. Okay, well, we are a corporate. Yeah, but you're not a corporation that we're used to dealing with that has a president, a vice president, all the usual trap. Well, this ought to be changed to take account of the fact that it, this is a different model and needs to be adjusted to. Professor Wolf believes that the government needs to step in and help foster the growth of worker co-ops in the United States. What about if, in order to get such a um, system going, the government made a commitment that uh, it's going to set up a special administration? I'm only using that word because that's the word been used in American history. So, for example, we have the Small Business Administration here in the United States. Been around for many decades. It was the result of a political demand at the beginning of the 20th century in which small businesses in America said, we're getting screwed by the big businesses. They outmaneuver us. They, they have more resources. They have better connections with the banks. It's not a level playing field, blah, 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 blah. And we want the government to help us. And the government set up a small business administration, which gives small businesses preferential low interest rate loans, technical assistance, a certain tendency to, to make government orders go to them rather than the big bit. In other words, it's an attempt to level the play. All I'm saying is let's have a cooperative businesses administration right alongside. It does for co-ops what was done for small businesses, what has been done in parts of this country for minority-owned businesses, for women-owned businesses, all of which are, are good attempts to correct social injustice, let's call it. Well, here's another one. Let's set that up. So after talking to Professor Wolf, I wanted to hear from someone who had actually done this, had set up and ran a worker co-op. Luckily, I didn't have to look far. My name is Rick Serpent. I am the president of Independence Care System and I'm the chair of the board of two related organizations, Cooperative Home Care Associates and PHI. Not only did Rick Serpin help create and run a worker co-op of home health care aides called Cooperative Home Care Associates in the Bronx, 
but it all started here at the Community Service Society back in the 1980s. So this is these are the Reagan years. Reagan years in the um, were a period of very large growth in jobs, but they tended to be lousy jobs, um, and that they so they were low pay, no benefits, um, not st- no stability, um, and what we set out to do is to create good jobs for poor people. Rick was the director of the former Center for Community Economic Development at CSS. The common things in community economic development at the time was small business development. So small business development took two forms. One was commercial stabilization in neighborhoods, and you'd put awnings up, and, and you'd, you'd, you'd put, you have a nice, nicer facade on the neighborhood, but no jobs were any better. The other was minority small business development, uh, where if you were successful, the owner of the business did pretty well, and but he had a second home. He, he was often a he um, had a second home, but the workers in the, in the company were paid just as badly as they were before. So um, our theory was that that if workers owned their own company, they could maximize their wages and benefits and have a better workplace. He had studied the cooperative workplaces in Europe and believed that the principles could also work in this country, though there weren't many examples in the 80s. So Rick and his team set out to build a worker co-op with the help of the Community Service Society. They said, here, tell me what you want to do. I'm going to trust you to do it and make something happen. (laughs) They looked to home health care because it was a growing sector of the economy that paid very low wages, had little consistency in work hours, and whose workers were frequently just not respected by their employers. At that time, the turnover rate for home health care aides in New York and countrywide was over 60% a year. Rick thought that the worker ownership model would be especially effective in this industry, where so much of the job has to do with relating with and working to help others. I came to believe very quickly that if you paid people and treated people well and they controlled their own place, it would make a huge impact on the quality of the care and would be, in that way, would be so much different than what happens in a manufacturing plant because in a manufacturing plant, you're, you're not working with other people. In a manufacturing plant, if you own the business and you tre- you'll treat it as your own and it will have a big impact on your own self-image and how you approach the job and hopefully how you feel about it, but to have a direct impact on the, the quality of the relationship, that seemed to me... Um, is the best of what worker ownership could do, and I think that is what's happened. Rick and his team established Cooperative Home Care Associates, or CHCA, in the South Bronx in 1985. Being one of the first worker-owned cooperatives in the city, they had to define what it meant to those applying for work. We didn't advertise it as a worker-owned company. We advertised it as we're paying better than other places. When we got to meet them and we hired them, we said we're able to do that because we intend for the company to be owned by the workers. But then you, when, you, when you think of worker ownership, or when you think of owned by the workers, everybody, if one can't help it, thinks that I'm going to control what happens. <laughs> so we, didn't, we weren't starting a collective. We were starting a, a, a company. This is what we thought we were doing, and we did, was have a company that was owned by the workers, where workers would control the board and the policy, but the day-to-day management was by professional management. And that was a really important distinction. So in cooperative home care associates, there would still be professional managers along with the home health care aides, but everyone would have an equal stake in the company, as each worker owner would hold one share of CHCA. No one owned more, from the president of the company to their latest hire. 
The company started with 10 home health care aides and a handful of staff. And though there were some rough times getting it off the ground, CHCA soon began to grow. Rick eventually needed to leave CSS and run the company as president full-time. The first thing I learned that was about democracy at Cooperative Home Care was that people divided roughly 50-50 on anything. And that, but they, if, you know, if they would just approach with a, a, an issue, and then you could look for, well, that 50% on the other side does, isn't really uniform in, in its belief system, and that, that you could get to a th- two-thirds place. And if you can get to a two-thirds place, and that other third thinks that they were dealt with fairly, that, that we didn't deceive anybody, that, we gave, that we, they had all the information that was available to everybody else, and that there was a reasonable discussion about it, and at the same time, action had to be taken, then they, were, they felt like, yeah, okay, that's what, that's what our democracy is. By 1993, the company had grown to nearly 300 employees and included extensive training for staff, along with increasing wages and job security. Today, CHCA is still going, with over 2,000 staff and a new office near Fordham University in the Bronx. Rick is now the chairman of the board for CHCA. I think a really important thing about cooperative home care is that people focus on the governance of a cooperative. What's really true is that the governance of the cooperative is governing a social community, and that that is no different than a town that has town democracy and elects people to represent them. And, and then... If you understand it that way, what you're trying to do is manage the differences and, and, and try and build consensus in the governance process. And the governance process becomes important to have a sense of solidarity in the community. <laughs> and that for the cooperative to be successful as a cooperative, that's what's essential. You could make business decisions where you could make money in a different way separate from that. And so one of the really hard things that an executive of a cooperative has to do is figure out how to align the business strategy and the the needs of the people in that community. Because at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, the cooperative has to be worth owning. And And that extends to even when there's not an immediate financial gain, meaning the dividends aren't given because the company's not doing well enough, which is a period that we've been in the last few years, and it hasn't been done well enough, but that people still see, I control this place and, it, and I like it here, it's my home, in a way that if I go to another place, I really can't trust the people to, to there to give wage increases even if they could afford it, and I know that we will do that when we can. And that as long as you think the company is reasonably well run, then you stay. And I think that it's a really powerful thing when done well. It's just that there are a lot more landmines to not doing it well. We moved here in August of 2012, so it's been four years. Came from 149th Street down in the South Bronx which we were there since like 1985. So after hearing all about Cooperative Home Care Associates from Rick, I had to go see it for myself. I got a tour from Executive Vice President Adria Powell. So I probably should have brought you up the elevator so that you could see like (laughs) how grand it is up here. Grand is right. After exiting the stairs onto the 14th floor, we see the space where CHCA does all their training and education. 
In the center of the floor stands rows of colorful lockers, and surrounding the outside are their classrooms. Adria walks us over to one of the rooms that she calls the lab. And the lab um, really has everything that a trainee and a worker would need in order to feel competent in the skills that they have to deliver when they get in the home. The lab looks kind of like a hospital ward. Against each wall is a series of beds, along with lifts, wheelchairs, and ramps, so healthcare aides can really practice the skills and tasks they will need to do in the field. We walk over to one corner of the room where there's a big window looking into another section of the lab. We have this really cool apartment style bathroom set up so that um, the trainee can do the demonstrations and really see what it's like in a home to have to transfer someone in and out of a maybe a wheelchair into the tub or to the commode. Um, and what happens is you have the person in there actually doing the demonstration and the rest of the class can benefit from watching it on this side of the window. We walk downstairs and see the other two floors where all the rest of the business of running the cooperative takes place. Human resources, finance, workforce development, clinical services, and service delivery. Each floor has large windows all the way around showing stunning views of the Bronx and making the office feel bright and open. We wrap up the tour and Adria introduces me to Juana Silvia Fuentes. Juana is a home health aide who's been with CHCA for over 10 years and she's currently serving on the board of directors. She is a natural caretaker and really loves helping others. It's a lot of people are trapped in the building sick up there. And some people don't have nobody. And they are happy when they see us because they have company and they have uh, people can talk, you know what I mean? So I am glad to help people. And I feel good to do it. Juana tells me that working at Cooperative Healthcare Associates is unlike any other place she has worked. This company is like a, like a family. That is the most I like because we talk and you, you can see the president, and you say, hi, hi, and he hugs you, and it's not like, a, you know, stay away from me. No, thank God. And I say, oh, okay. So they give you more confidence, you know, to, to work with. And, and, and you love the company. So that's why we work with more uh, courage, and we work with more heart, you know, and, and, and we work quality job, quality work. Talking to Juana and seeing her pride when discussing her work and her company, it really is all of the ideas that Richard Wolf and I talked about and the practice that Rick Serpin worked hard to put in place made flesh. Juana knows that she owns a piece of CHCA and that the company has her back, and that makes a difference in how she approaches her work. She is a great example of how structuring a company in this way not only improves the morale of the people working there, but directly affects the way they interact with the clients they are helping. And in a profession that requires such an intimate connection as home health care does, that can make all the difference. After talking with Professor Wolf and Rick Serpin, I have to admit there was a part of me that always had some doubts about the reality of worker co-ops, that while it all sounds great, it wouldn't really work. Well, the smile on Juana's face when she mentions CHCA makes it pretty hard to question. So back to CSS. As I mentioned earlier, we hosted an event on November 2nd where Professor Wolf, along with writer Michael Denzel Smith, 
and CSS Associate Counsel Kimberly Westcott discussed not only the idea of worker co-ops, but a specific new application of them that could help low-income and marginalized populations, especially the formerly incarcerated, in New York City. They call it community-supported worker cooperatives. Kim Westcott. It is a cooperative structure that is democratic and is supported horizontally by the workers, just like any worker cooperative, where the community, through consensus, and hopefully through at the very grassroots and also through the community boards and legislators have expressed a desire to have this structure and will support the specific structures and incubate these structures in, the, in that community and provide additional supports, uh, maybe in terms of building, in terms of operating costs, in terms of tax abatements, uh, to be able to qualify and to support them. But there's affirmative obligations for this particular structure to benefit the community. And this means training obligations, access to skills with career path, and also maybe additionally some lower cost services to community members. The idea is that areas of New York City that are under-resourced, that have a higher concentration of poverty and unemployment, could choose to create worker co-ops that not only fill an economic need with their goods or services, but provide an entry point for members of the community to get meaningful, stable work. The community support part of community-supported worker cooperatives is more than just the community desiring a co-op to be established there. It would mean real financial commitments from the community, the city, from nonprofits, and foundations. One possible way this could work would be to establish what Kim calls a worker co-op incubator. You would want a large community space, maybe deed-restricted, for public use for worker cooperative. Maybe if you're lucky, you can get a 30,000 square foot space and you have maybe spaces for 10 or five or whatever for worker co-ops who can incubate their low cost or no cost rent. They would then get great support in terms of real grant funding. There would be some subsidies for loans and then you allow them to develop like an incubator over time. The hope is that by using this support, this incubator, worker co-ops could get off the ground in the neighborhoods where good jobs are needed the most. Then, as the co-ops graduate from the incubator program, they could go set up shop in the neighborhood as standalone businesses. And because they would be mandated to provide training during their time at the incubator, they'd be giving back to their community from day one. Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, it's a big idea. But it's easy to see how something like this, a different way of people organizing their labor, a new option for people who traditionally have been more excluded from our society's workforce, could be a game changer for New York City. I couldn't include all the details in this podcast, so if you want to read more about this idea, you can find an essay by Kim Westcott and Richard Wolf on our website at www.cssny.org COOP. And keep an eye on our webpage event section for our next color line in the 21st century conversation. That's going to do it for this month's podcast. Check back with us in early December for our next episode, all about the campaign to bring low-income discounts to public transit in New York City. You can find more podcasts from us at cssny.org podcast, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And if you do, please rate us and comment, as that will help other people find the show. Also, please let us know what you think of this episode. Write us at info at cssny.org or tweet at cssny.org. Thanks for listening.